0: Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Peter Geegan from Open Democracy, and we're going to talk all about the wonderful cronyism, corruption of the COVID contracts. So welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Hello, thanks for having me on.
0: No problem. So uh, before we start, shameless plug, um, everyone go buy my book, uh, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. It will be out by the time this is released, so uh, the link will be in the description below. So... Peter, you've done um, a little bit of reporting for Open Democracy. I was actually looking at some of your stuff um, earlier on the con- the COVID contracts. L- to me, it, it, do you, do you think it's one of the most kind of stunning examples of of of, of corruption that we've seen in in twenty first century politics? Because that's that's really what it seems like to me. <laughs>
1: It's quite remarkable, really, isn't it? Like, you know, if you look at, so we had, you know, to, to pull the lens back a bit, you know, like the, the crisis happened, the COVID crisis hit Britain in, you know, as it hit the rest of the world pretty much this time last year, you know, kind of from, from the kind of end of February, start of March 2020 on. And if you look at what happened in Britain, you know, we had this basically what was a huge outsourcing of the COVID response from the state to the public, to the private sector. Um, which is not that surprising in the conservative governments and all the rest of it, but when it comes to like who and how they did out they outsourced that, and um, it was overwhelmingly to a very 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 small number of people who were far more likely uh, to be conservative donors than uh, than not. and um, we had like a basically in November the National Audit Office. Which is a kind of spending watchdog in Britain, they published analysis of um of the cover of COVID contracts and found that there was there existed a kind of what was called a VIP lane for party for people who were political donors. And if people who were in this VIP lane were 10 times more likely to be given a government contract than those who weren't. You know, we saw things like you know, very prominent. Uh, Conservatively aligned firms, firms run by conservative donors, politically connected firms, some of which had almost no experience doing this. In one incredible case, we had a conservative councillor in the Cotswolds who set up a business supplying PPE, something he'd never really done before, and was given something like 300 million pounds worth of contracts. And if you think about the overheads, if this person was only getting 10% and there's every evidence that they were getting more, these are life changing sums of money to be given out. Uh, to be given out to um people who very very little experience So what we it's you know i i'm struggling to continue to think of an equivalent kind of experience where we ju- we saw quite so much cronyism i think cronyism is definitely a word you know the, the challenge is to know if it was corruption was m- did money change hands for this we don't know we don't there's a lot of questions we don't know about that and that's definitely i think much further than i would go with but there's a lot of questions to be asked just generally about like how a small group of people who are politically connected profited so much during the pandemic response
0: mm, it's really stunning i mean i just just uh matt hancock actually has been has been at the center of this he had um a friend of his got uh it came out that was had got a contract a few days ago and then i'm just looking at a piece um in the metro here where um a firm that's uh apparently linked to his family according to the byline times here uh, got a five point five million pound contract to provide mobile testing units, and just every it seems that there there is, as you said, there's a a, a very select group of people who who t- tend to, t- tend to be uh, donors or people related to the, the the government who seem to keep getting these contracts, regardless of like previous experience in the in the area. And honestly, like the thing that that confuses me is the lack. Of outrage, like for me, it's that they are taking what they are—they cl- are constantly telling us—is the the biggest crisis to hit Britain, possibly in a hundred years if you don't count the war, and they are standing on the graves of the dead to hand money. <laughs> To people very closely connected to them, and it just seems disgusting and abhorrent, and and like there, like there should there should be more outrage. Like like may, maybe I'm getting like too wound up about it, but like why do you think there's not been more kind of yeah outrage at, at this at the at this cronyism?
1: It's a very good question. I think like there's almost like a kind of sense in which it's become like you know, I think people are quite inured almost to this politically in Britain. I think that, which I think is a very bad thing. You know, I think there's almost a sense in which, like, you know, that politicians, even that are kind of they're held in such low regard we can see that from polls around trust in politics so what you see is like people politicians basically at the public you know not really kind of caring or seeing this as something that the politicians would do anyway which i think you could almost argue isn't the case you know it's not that british politics is whiter than white until this happened it wasn't you know, we've had scandals going back you know cash for questions cash for access cash for honors stretching back decades you know it's part of almost the dna of british politics but the scale of this and the, you know, the extent to which you can really see it, it's not as if, you know, it would be one thing if, and this does happen, like, you know, big companies give money to the Conservative Party. It's in some ways not that surprising. But a lot of these companies were either not big companies or had no experience in doing this before. Um, and it continued on, you know, this, it, the NAO report, the National Ad Office report, you know, it sounds geeky and all the rest of it, in many ways it is, but it's really very damning. You know, this is an official government watchdog being heavily, heavily critical, you know, basic records weren't kept, basic documents weren't kept, um, you know, basic, basic, basic checks were not being done. And when they went to try and figure out what had happened, the paper trail wasn't there. It's the kind of thing that if, you know, if, if you or I was to do with our tax returns, would get us into serious, serious trouble but yet the government um has done this with you know massive amounts of public money huge amount I, one thing that always struck me one example was during the, you know if, and I'm sure some listeners remember during the pandemic a few months ago there was a huge long running like it went on for days between kind of a standoff between the central government between Boris Johnson the Conservative Party and uh, Andy Burnham the mayor of Manchester and Andy mm. Burnham wanted 65 million pounds as extra additional funding for the to, for the covid response for Manchester Boris Johnson only give 60 million. And that, that, it went down to massive brinksmanship, over 5 million pounds. These contracts are worth billions and billions of pounds. Like Money was floating around like confetti. Some people made their fortunes in this time last year uh, who had no experience in this. And there seems to be a huge unwillingness in government to ask how and why did this happen?
0: Hmm. I mean, I'm looking at one of your pieces here for for open democracy. Uh, actually, and it's uh, it says government accused of cronyism after Tory councillor wins a 156 million pound COVID contract. Um, it was just a small uh, you describe it as a loss making firm run by a Conservative councillor in Stride, and he was given 156 million pounds to import PPE from China, and you just it's it's the the amount of money that we're dealing with is. It's 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 like almost like I, sometimes I struggle to grasp with like really large sums of money just how much is being spent. But as you said, it's it's billions. Like the test and trace system, I th- I saw an estimate the other day that suggested it cost twenty two billion pounds and not worked. And and like, why do you think it is that there is so little desire in government to push for these questions? Because if I was Keir Starmer or or uh, Keir Starmer sta- staffer or I don't know political advisor you would be begging him to hammer them over this every single day, like you could talk about about that they're they're handing over your your children's future tax revenue to their mates in the midst of again as i said like the what they like they describe as like the biggest and most all encompassing crisis and it is that that we faced um in basically in living memory and they're using it to to just give away like years and years of future tax revenue and and blow up the national debt that that they themselves were constantly going on about um, like why do you think there is like why do you think labor or or, or someone is not hammering this in government
1: Well, to be fair to Labour, actually, like, especially in the last few weeks, they've really have been very strong on this issue. issue. Like, Rachel Reeves came out on Monday with a very big speech on this. You know, if you look through uh, Hansard, you can actually see Labour have have actually decided this is an issue that they're going to push on, and they believe that there's, like, kind of... Just like you say, that there's a public out there going, you know, how did this happen, and you can talk to people about it. I think one of the challenges is that... You know, there's almost... In the issue... like, like the work i do like i you know i cover things like this it's almost a challenge of breaking through the the noise of the 24-hour news cycle i do think it's become increasingly difficult you know to kind of put these issues of accountability and transparency onto the agenda and i, th- I think you know like the the struggles that labor and Keir Starmer have had of making this issue cut through in some ways mirror the struggles that a lot of people you know that are not even struggles but mirror boris johnson's you know kind of and completely blasé attitude towards all rules and responsibilities, you know. <laughs> and the fact that Boris Johnson's political career has not been damaged by things like, you know, the Jennifer Curie story, where basically a woman he was having an affair with got preferential access to all sorts of things from City Hall, including grants and trips to foreign, foreign countries. Um, and for some politicians, that would that would be the end of their career. But I think in some ways, Boris Johnson's Teflon nature, his ability to just kind of buffoon and laugh through things, has made it much harder, you know, in a political way, for Labour to get traction with these sorts of things. I think that's part of it. You know, in some ways, the pro- the, as I said earlier, the public has become a bit inured to these sorts of stories too. And I guess it's like, as you say, the sums involved are so huge, it can be quite hard, you know, like it's a terrible kind of... I'm not saying it's like it's like the communist purges, but you know that famous quote from Stalin that you know the death of one man is a tragedy, and the death of a million is a statistic. And so it kind of mm-hmm. it, it's these numbers. They kind of like even I struggle to get to kind of grab hold of them and and to kind of make it tangible. I think what you're talking about there about like your kids' future tax revenues. I think that's the kind of thing that's needed to really make this kind of sit and people like and also basically. they've, like, in general, you know, they've been able to avoid uh, questions about a lot of this stuff. You know, the, the, the newspapers have covered it, but it's just something that, you know, it's it's almost become part of just the daily politics, you know. Like, I, I did a lot of these stories nine months ago, and I've, I've done them for the last nine months probably, but I probably have done less of them the last few months because in some ways it's, it's like proving the same hypothesis over and over again. It becomes, I almost say, you know, I've almost had to decide, okay, look, that story is important that I mean, we continue to cover it, but it can't be the only thing I do because for that same reason, like you're kind of showing the same thing over and over again, there's a de- definition of madness. You know, kind of Einstein's definition of madness, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And you're seeing that here where the same thing is happening over and over again. And, you know, it's it's, it's to, be, to be the person covering it, it's actually almost frustrating because you're not seeing, you know, contracts have still been uh, published months and months late you know contracts still been given out like long after the height of the pandemic had happened contracts still been given out to um uh, to many of the biggest you know major corridors like just a couple of weeks ago i published a new story showing how lord ashcroft's firm had been given a 350 million pound covid contract you know lord ashcroft the former chair of the conservative party uh, for, you know it was a company was part of the group that he is the chairman of so you know it, it, It just feeds into all that a kind of sense in which there is a cadre, like what I call clientelistic politics, where you've got a cadre of people who are close to power and they are benefiting from it massively. In a way that if it happened in our country, I think we wouldn't use words like chumocracy. We'd certainly use words like cronyism. We'd probably even use words like corruption too.
0: Mm. I mean, it seems like, uh, as as you kind of said there, that that we've got like... like corruption fatigue almost from from the, from this government that which is a really hor- a really you know awful place to be in. <laughs> it's not it's not where you would you would expect and and there's there's a number of things that that have happened this year that that would have been the end for many people. I mean, if you go back say fifteen or twenty years, and and you'd had the same that you the the interview that the that Matt Hancock did with Piers Morgan where he got just absolutely butchered. Um, about I don't know, it must have been a, a month ago. That would have been that would have just been the end of his career, like that. That, that, that or at least for Didn't a couple you? of years that he would have that would have, that would have been a resigning matter in a in the Blair government, for example. But but now it doesn't seem to be, and and you kind of mentioned actually there that brings us nicely onto the next point. The 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 fact they've not been publishing contracts on time um you i've i've seen on twitter you've been having a little a few problems with the freedom of, uh, freedom of information requests like well what's been going on there
1: yeah well so we've been doing a lot of work on FOI and FOI is you know it's, it's a very vital tool for for journalists but for citizens too any kind of participation participation, you know, basically FOI allows you to write to any public body and request information that has been produced by or held by a public body in in essence. So the idea is, you know, if, basically the rule of thumb is if public money paid for it, you should be entitled to it, which is great. And lots of stories came from FOI. I'm sure you remember the expenses scandal, you know, that, that was a product of FOI that, you know, that was a product of, of documents that were produced in response to an FOI request. There's been many, many stories over the years since FOI came into force in Britain in 2005 that have featured FOI. But what we're seeing in government is worse and worse uh, FOI response rates and more and more attempts of stymie and and stop journalists using FOI and and obfuscate. You know, a lot of journalists really, I find, have have almost stopped using FOI altogether because of that, because it's become increasingly difficult to get information out of government. And ironically, the hardest department to get information out of is the Cabinet Office, which is the, the department that's actually in charge of FOI. (laughs) <laughs> so me and my colleagues at Open Democracy, uh, Jenna Cordray, and Lucas I mean, we wrote a report called Art of Darkness that came out in November that was just like looking at all of these things, like showing how response rates had decreased, how much harder it was, how how it was how it was taking longer to get information out of departments, how when you um when you appeal, so you appeal to the regulator, the information commissioner's office, that was taking longer. Even when appeals went against departments, they were they weren't providing information. So just Really showing what how, how broken the system is. And we also discovered that within the Cabinet Office, is a thing called a clearinghouse. And this is a place where FOIs um, that are sent, round robin FOIs sent to multiple government departments, or what are classified as sensitive FOIs, are sent to this clearinghouse. And what we were able to discover, it took us a long time, was that actually this clearinghouse was circulating lists across Whitehall with the names of journalists and the names of places they work for. Um, kind of been copied into like numerous government departments and in ways that legal experts say, breaks um, breaks um, data protection laws, but also begs really big questions just about how these this system is supposed to be about transparency is actually operating in government. You know, it doesn't you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to wonder about, well, well, what's going on? If the government department can see an FOI requester's details, they can write things like they did about my colleague. This is Jenna Cordroy. She's an investigative reporter with Open Democracy. She uses FOI a lot. That's not what's supposed to be happening with like this. You're know, basically, you're in a place where FOI requests are being vetted. And we've found lots of evidence where sign-offs are happening from government ministers in ways that are not supposed to happen with the Act. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing, you know, what we're seeing is, I think, kind of a move away uh, to try and block transparency. And this government has been very, very untransparent. And and throughout history, since FOI came in 15 years ago, both Labour, when they were in office and the Tories, often tried to neuter FOI. They're ignoring FOIs, they're ignoring rulings, they're ignoring judgments. And so what we ended up doing at Open Democracy was we published a big story about the Clearing House towards the end of last year, which caused a lot of noise. And this week we published um, a story because um, a lot of Fleet Street editors, almost every big Fleet Street editor, every major newspaper editor signed an open letter from Open Democracy calling for an investigation into the Clearing House and into the wider issue of FOI in government to find out you know what's actually going on with this um it's a i think it's a genuine scandal in many ways because what is supposed to be an enshrined right to information we have a right to know has uh, been blocked and frustrated by a government that has no interest seems to have little of any interest in transparency
0: mm. uh do, were you on the list or any of your colleagues do you know
1: my name was being sub was being passed around as part of this pastor and why so my colleague jenna's name was too many other journalists it's like it's that is not how this is supposed to appropriate you know that you're going to have your name being circulated around government departments okay these are these journalists like like me who are doing stories that like i'm sure the government aren't particularly fond of writing books like i write there's an FOI request from that guy well like, how are we going to treat that
0: I mean, it's not—it's not a good precedent for them to be setting. I don't—I don't like this this thing that seems to be going on with modern politics, where they, everyone seems to like making lists of not non agreeable people. <laughs> It's—it's uh, not—it's not—not a, a very nice trend. I don't like where it's going. <laughs> um, but what does this say about like the government's respect for like journalism and and transparency and and how uh, have they responded in any way to that open letter that was signed?
1: A lot of political response, even from within the Conservative Party, from the backbench of the Conservative Party. You know, the heads of two influential uh, Westminster committees, parliamentary committees, William Ragg, the head of what's it called? and Constitutional Affairs Committee, and the Department for Cultural, Media and Sports, Select Committee Chair Julie and I, they both made statements to open democracy, like asking questions about this clearinghouse, asking questions about the other conservative politicians had really strong comments. Andrew Mitchell, a former Tory minister, still a backbench MP, he said there should be investigation. But the problem is, is actually forcing action from the government. So the only real response was the Cabinet Office published a blog post, basically, he said article and, and kind of downplaying it and saying there was nothing to see here and that's unfortunately the response you get from government at the moment when it comes to raising an issue like that where you can see cross-party the people are going this is wrong you know every newspaper editor on fleet street pretty much it united everyone from the guardian to daily telegraph <laughs> the editor of the Guardian, Cat feiner signed it. The editor of Telegraph, Chris Evans, signed the letter too. John Rittero from the Times was very vocal. A Sunday Times editor signed it. The FT's editor signed it. Paul Dacre signed it. As did Alan Rusbridger, so the former Daily Mail editor and the former Guardian editor both signed this letter. So clearly, this is something that across—it's not a partisan issue. You know, this is a bipartisan thing. This is something that unites people who are interested in freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and and just a free press.
0: So. That's actually really interesting that everyone signed it. From that's that's actually a very positive note uh, to to for a positive thing to think about. That the at least the the press are truly united around issues like this, which is um, not something that you see very often with the British press. Um, you'll see like some some like <laughs> Telegraph columnist talking about how the government doesn't need to doesn't need to be transparent if they if they don't want to, and then all the way to some. Guardian opinion piece that'll talk about how it's uh, really not about that at all, and not totally about something else. <laughs> um, but why do you think there's been um, so, like, in in your book, you talked a lot about um, the sort of dark money loopholes and the the capacity or, or the 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 way in which British politics is is kind of quite vulnerable to to dark money coming in and and being bought. Like, why do you think there's been so few moves since? since brexit and since sort of the the, this has started to become a more something that's more in the public knowledge why do you think there's very little been done about this
1: it's a good question there's a lot of things you could do that wouldn't be that difficult either um but the problem is to be honest the long and the short of it is um there's a lack of political will to change there's a lack of it's submission to one of the ongoing inquiries, the Conservatives' idea of abolishing the Electoral Commission altogether. This is in the context where almost everybody agrees the Electoral Commission's remit is too narrow and the Electoral Commission needs like needs more powers, not less. Like The maximum fine for breaking electoral law in Britain is £20,000. In America, it's a federal offence. If Remember Michael Cohen, the former Donald Trump fixer, he ended up in prison on an you know, extensive prison sentence for breaking electoral law. Here in Britain, you get not even a slap on the wrist. You know, if you think about it, like British general elections are have been described as 650 little mini general elections. You know, every seat its own little general election. And even if your party loses, you have to win your seat. And if you've won your seat, you've won it based on the system. And most, you know, every politician pretty much knows the system doesn't work. But they are pretty much loath to change it because they know how it works, even though it doesn't. You know, they know how they know how the broken system works. And many of them, I think, do fear in the broken system could be lost in that
0: yeah it's it's kind of disturbing honestly that that such a, and and the 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 kind of dark money loopholes are just one aspect of 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 the the vulnerabilities of our of our elec- of our elections i think at the minute um we got social media um and its power and influence um advertising online and it's again it's power and influence especially when you're considering um the micro-targeting and how much testing they can do on what ad f- functions perfectly and like all these things that I have um, very conveniently written about in my book that people should go and buy um that there's essentially and very luckily for me um or you know my book would be a lot, a lot more pointless uh, they haven't done anything about any of these issues um one thing actually that I, I kind of make the case for at the end of the book is that we should ban political advertising online, and I've been I've been asking quite a few people what their take on that is, like if if they think it's feasible or if it's even a good idea, or or so. So, do do you think we should ban political advertising online?
1: I I think there's definitely a case to be made for it. Like, do we need to have political advertising online? You know, I do wonder about that. Like, is there, you know, like is there a real reason like would our political process fail to work anymore if we had if we had if we were to ban political advertising online and the problem with political advertising online is less to do with political parties advertising and it's more to do what we call third-party campaigners advertising online so in the run-up to 2019 general election it was well over a million pounds spent by kind of like almost fictitious campaigns that just sprung up and started buying ads on facebook you know during the brexit uh during the kind of long years of the brexit process millions have spent on on anonymous dark ads online in one case a group called britain's future emerged and i write about them in my book and britain's future spent about four hundred thousand pounds on facebook ads it was run britain's future was run by a 30 something former uh like pretty looks pretty moderately successful to be kind a uh, screenwriter living in manchester there's no suggestion that he had been able to pay for or bought all these ads on his own, but it was completely, it was po- totally possible to do so. And actually, later those ads were linked to Linton Cross. Yeah, I think there's a really strong case to be made for banning political advertising online. I think there's, you know, I think it's, there's a fair question. Like we had politics, we had political campaigning before we had political advertising online. You know, we didn't, we didn't, um we, you know, political advertising online hasn't, in, you can ask the question, has it made our politics better? I think it's very hard to argue that it has. Um, and if you look at my big, the biggest problem as well is that political advertising online allows it's less to do it. I think the problem is less to do with um, political parties as much as it is to do what we call third-party campaigners. Normal campaigning, because they've got no actual support, would never be able to do very much. Um, but online, they can have a huge reach. They can buy huge numbers of ads, pretty much unlimited ads. So, like in the run-up to the twenty nineteen British general election, we saw, I think, probably about a million pounds, if not more, being spent by these um, by these kind of third party campaigners who we don't know where they come from, we don't know where their money comes from, and and I think that can warp the political process. I think so. I, I kind of do think there's a reasonable... But like, do we need to have ad- political adverts on the internet? I'm not sure we do.
0: Yeah, I mean the, um, the 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 example I always I always make at this point when 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 I'm talking to someone is. Like, we we decided a long time ago that, unlike in America, in Britain, we were going to just say, no, you're not allowed to advertise politically on, on television, really. There's no political, apart from, like, the occasional party political broadcast. There is no, there is none of the 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 sort of adverts that you'd see in America, like the the ridiculous hit pieces or the or the 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 wonderful things where it's always ending with you know a flag waving in slow motion and you know vote for this person, they're a patriot, and um, it's it. We decided then that we just thought that that it was politics belonged on the doorstep, essentially that your your reach should be based on how many people you can get, get to, to come to your your rallies or or your town halls or your meetings or your or how many people were in the trade union in your local area and would go knock on doors or or, or things like that where it belonged on on the street. And I I I don't honestly see the case for for, for letting it can continue. Um or well, the only the only problem I think we would have is is trying to trying to regulate it because it's it'd be very hard to, to sort of like where you would draw the line, but we we managed to do it with with TV ads and the. So I I don't yeah I don't see the I don't see the argument against, but I think it's very much that, unfortunately, just as 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 you were talking about earlier, that the politicians are, I'd say, more willing to exploit, the the unregulated nature of it rather than decide that it's better to to try and like put a put a handle on it.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's. I feel like the, rather than that, rather than that producing thing, where you go okay, right? This if this is a free for all, we should do something to stop this free for all. We should think about like how do we, you know, how do we regulate it? How do we control it? Rather than that, it's been kind of going. Okay, it's a free for all. So just let. It go. That's that's the thing that I do really. You know, like you do worry about, but you. Go back to that same question. Why do we let it happen? If you look, you know, go back to twenty nineteen general election, the run up to that, in a live debate, we saw the Conservative Party rebranded their Twitter account as a fact checking account and double down on it. So I think that tells you a lot about it.
0: Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately it's a, it's a, a sad situation, or a sad, sad situation, as Elton John would say. Um. <laughs> But thanks for your time, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I will will send you a PDF of the book.
1: Please do. I look forward to seeing it.
0: No problem. Right, well, enjoy the rest of your day.
1: You too. Have a lovely weekend. You too, man. Bye. Take care. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.